0: Hello and welcome to the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Now, a few weeks ago, the Prime Minister announced some pretty substantial changes to the plan to reach net zero. The ban on the sale of new cars with petrol and diesel engines has been pushed back to 2035 instead of 2030, and instead of a 100% phase out of new gas boilers by 2035, this has been changed to 80%. He's also scrapped a range of energy efficiency targets for homes. So, joining us today, I'm delighted to say, and for an honest conversation about the pathway to net zero, is Chris Stark, who is chief executive of the Climate Change Committee, a body of which I was a member for, I think, 11 years until earlier this year. It's an independent statutory body which advises the government on climate change. Chris, should we start with those announcements? People listening may well think, well, you know, We're looking at net zero by 2050, pushing back the data which you have to buy an electric car to 2035. Is that really a big deal? If we get to 80% of new boilers being not gas in 2035, we've done really quite well. I mean, were these as big and worrying as some of the press would have suggested in terms of making sure we are on that path to net zero? Uh, so, hello, Paul. It's lovely to see you
1: again, and um, I'm very happy to join you today and uh, and talk about something that, of course, you and I used to talk about around the committee table when you were a member of the CCC. And you will recall, um, but it's not as commonly known as perhaps it should be that the date of net zero by 2050 is very important. But it's not the only thing that matters here. Um, in fact, what matters more is the path to net zero. So, if we were talking, if we were a sort of benevolent global dictator, uh, and we are not, uh, we would be We would be more worried about the path to that destination than we would the destination itself, because it's the area under the curve that matters for climate change. So uh, climate change is a cumulative problem. The more CO2 and other, and other greenhouse gases that we pump into the atmosphere, the warmer the planet gets. And although we need to get to net zero, net zero is just the point when that warming stops. So Broadly, the same is true at UK level, and we have a, a legal framework for tackling climate change that recognizes that. So the goal of net zero is a relatively recent goal, and you were amongst the people that uh, that acted and, and worked on the analysis that led to the setting of that target, poll. And when we did that work a few years back. And although that's one of the most important and impactful pieces of work that I've ever worked on... What really matters is the fact that we then, after setting the net zero target, set a set of other targets that guided the country towards it, um, notably what's called the sixth carbon budget, uh, which is one of these interim legal targets that has the same status under law as the as the 2050 goal does. Um, and that, that for me, is the thing that really matters. So um, we have to get ourselves on a path to achieving net zero by 2050. And we have to do so in such a way that we cut emissions as quickly as we can. And that's broadly what the Climate Change Act sets out. And I think it's in that frame and that context that you have to consider what the Prime Minister said a couple of weeks ago, because he made great fanfare of the fact that he was changing the approach to net zero. And he talked a lot about net zero itself. He talked rather less about that path to net zero and the interim targets that have, again, the same legal status in law. And I, I think... in. For me, at least, and I'm interested in your view too on this, Paul. I think we should make a distinction between policy and politics, because I think those two things are different. And particularly, uh, you know, when when we think about what he actually said, because when you when you look at the substance of what he announced in in Downing Street, again with great fanfare, with the new Conservative Party slogan on the front of his lectern. What he announced didn't amount to that much because he talked about a change in uh, the dates by which we stopped selling uh, various boilers. Uh, Notably in 2026, we were planning to have a point when we stopped installing oil boilers in uh, off-gas grid uh, houses. Uh, The government had done very little prep for that, so I wasn't really expecting them to implement that. So 2026, that one was already in the post. He's postponed that one. Um, He's made a change to this date in the future uh, when uh, we are uh, due to stop installing gas boilers, he's, he's a slightly perplexing policy of saying only 80% of properties need to have uh, 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 a change there. And I think more consequent, more consequentially, he's changed something on the energy performance certification of rented properties, which uh, was a was an interim, uh, a, a pretty pretty uh, pretty important uh, change that basically landlords are going to have to change the. Uh, energy performance of the properties that they rent to their tenants pretty soon. And he's moved that back as well. And he did various things. Probably the most notable thing was this EV thing, this electric vehicles target that you mentioned. Um, He's moved that from the Boris Johnson 2030 date. That was the date by which we were going to stop selling conventional petrol and diesel cars and vans. And he's pushed that back to 2035, which is more in line with most countries in Europe. Some of them, actually, are still around that 2030 date. But actually, we weren't expecting many electric car and many petrol or diesel cars to be sold from 2030 onwards, because uh, although you could still have hybrids under the old uh, targets, we think the economics of hybrids uh, are just not as good as electric cars. And that's basically still the case. So we think that by 2030, we will have most people buying electric cars anyway, the vast majority. So actually, when you look at what he announced, the actual shift that he's moved and he's made in policy terms is not that great. Um, But he gave the impression of an enormous shift. And that's where the politics comes in. And I can tell you from uh, my discussions with people outside of the UK, that's what people have noticed. And I can tell you equally from people working in business and the private sector who were gearing up to deliver a lot of this stuff, they have also noticed this big political shift. And I think that is what matters. That is really the consequential thing. Um, We still have back to the interim targets, a hell of a lot of policy to make to come if we're going to hit these targets. And that policy must now be made in a very different politics. And that's going to be more difficult. And that's my biggest worry, actually. It's not the substance of what he announced at the lectern in Downing Street. It's the fact that the stuff that needs to come next, and you know, he acknowledged that there is more to come. We have been very clear that there is a lot more that is needed to come if we're going to hit these legal targets. That's just going to be more difficult, for whether it's a continuing conservative government or in a future future Labour government. Then there is a narrower politics now in which to make these 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 policies, and uh, and for me, I think that's a
0: that's a that's a shame. Well, I think you can tell that we worked together on the committee for a while, because I think I agreed with everything that you just said. (laughs) Um, It it really did strike me that most of what was announced was really quite small beer, really, in terms of the specific policies. It's not going to make that much difference to electric vehicles. If we can get to 80% of um, gas boilers, new new boilers being non-gas by 2035, it's not far off 100%, and frankly, we would be doing pretty well, and we might talk about some of the policy that's required to achieve even that. But as you say, the, um, the sense given was not just one of a different politics, but also one of greater uncertainty, I guess, um, which I think is one of the key concerns about the, uh, the path from here when you've got a prime minister who changes things um, by announcement um, almost on a whim. Uh, then, of course, that can happen again and again. And exactly as you describe, it puts some uncertainty in the minds of the businesses and households and so on who might need to change in order to achieve these things. Um, But let's talk about that issue of policy, because, I mean, that's the thing where I guess I worry, and I think you worry, um, that we've had um, over the last decade and more actually almost uh, this this wonderful consensus about needing to change, about now needing to get uh, net zero. But I sense still uh, a lack of real um, understanding of what's needed. And and certainly, you know, if you look at um, where we are on improving uh, household insulation, at where we are in terms of actually achieving even an eighty percent target for replacing gas boilers by. Um, 2035, or even where we are in terms of fully decarbonising the electricity network, um, there's still quite a big job to do to put those policies in place. There is a huge job.
1: And, I, and uh, uh, that, I think, is where we need to come back to. I mean, I think even if we didn't have a Climate Change Act, we'd want to be doing many of these things. And we're not putting in place some of the steps that you see in other countries. And that's, for me, a worry. So we want to be building a kind of energy system that will supply clean and crucially cheap energy to consumers in the UK. We might add into the mix something that we haven't talked about for a while, but definitely we have been thinking about over the last couple of years, which is the the level of energy security that comes with a system like that too. I think it's interesting watching what the, 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 as we are talking today, the Labour Party conference is taking place and they've made more of this energy security stuff, linking that together with, with net zero. And if anything, that sort of reveals the scale of the challenge a bit more um, than perhaps the net zero uh, stuff does. Because if you look at that, if you look how dependent we are on imported goods of all kinds, but especially fossil fuels. Um, we as a country um, have a, a you know a mountain to climb to, to get ourselves to a point. If you really believe in energy security and energy independence, which is the the, the term that um, the Labour uh, the Shadow Team has been using. Um, And net zero does bring this kind of energy independence, but you need to invest at a scale that we just haven't been investing in, uh, in the energy system. And partly that's to do with things that we have been doing quite well over recent years, which is investing in the infrastructure for generating electricity in a different way. There's been a lot of discussion about the planning regime and the need to change that and to change the, you know, the grid connection queue so that we can put pylons in places to bring that electricity to people where they need it from places where we presently don't generate electricity, but will in the future, notably, you know, the North Sea. Um, And all of that stuff was kind of understood, you know, I think is out there uh, and, and relatively well understood. And the bit that's not well understood and the bit where I have the biggest concern is that we also need to invest at the kind of household level or at the level of businesses. And the inv- those investments are different. They are inv- we're investing uh, in different technologies that will allow us to use that clean energy in the future, notably things like heat pumps which have received a huge amount of coverage recently, uh, and not just in this country. Uh, Germany's having a, a, you know, a, a really interesting and difficult time of it trying to implement very similar strategies at household level. And that's where the gap lies for me. Um, it, you know, the investments that we as, as people and, uh, and people living in the UK need to make to hit net zero, uh, some of those will need to be supported with policy. Some of them will happen you know, over time anyway. Um, but that's where we're finding the reluctance from the government to act. I think so. You're kind of pushing people to do things that they might not otherwise do otherwise. So moving off their gas boilers onto heat pumps, moving off their petrol cars to electric cars, uh, and relying on the fact that the energy system that, that those technologies will use will then be in a, a you know a, a, a fit state to, to 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 support those technologies in the future too. And that is just a huge mission for the country, um, and it's it's expensive. And I don't think we should duck the fact that it's expensive, um, but it's expensive in a, a, a slightly peculiar way. These are investments rather than costs, that um, there is a cost, but um, you, there is also a saving in making these investments that that grows over time. And the payback for those investments, some of them is very, very quick. So if you buy an electric car today, and as those cars get cheaper, the payback for that versus buying a you know, brand new petrol diesel car is actually very quick because they're so much more efficient, so much cheaper to run. That's not true of a heat pump. And that introduces this next level um, of, of, of the question of how you support households, consumers, and businesses that can't afford to make those investments, even though the benefit is there in the in the long run. And that's where I feel the government's getting hung up. Although they've pumped lots of money into this stuff, it's it's a a very unconservative thing to do is to sort of add these big subsidies uh, into play, uh, bring them into play and encourage people to move to heat pumps. It, It seems to me we're not, we're ducking the questions about what you're doing at a more systemic level across the whole economy to actually make this stuff happen. And it's not quick. So if you don't make the plans to do this, then it takes you know literally years, decades to get that sorted out. And um, we are at the moment living off um, you know the decisions that were taken during the sort of Cameron and Osborne era uh, on renewables and you know we're seeing how long that took to come through, but you know, we're, it's quite remarkable how much more the UK has done than other countries to, to change its, its uh, electricity generation system. We've got to do the same again in transport, the same again in heat. Uh, we've also got industry questions. There's all bigger questions about what you do about things like farming, and this is not a government that is willing to take some of those tough decisions at the moment, especially in the year before an election. It seems.
0: Well, let, let's. Um, you, you, you almost sounded like you felt that the uh, sort of energy renewable sort of bit of the job had been done, but uh, there's. Uh, and certainly we've made huge progress um, and I can't remember the numbers, but quite a high fraction now of renew- of, of um, electricity is, is renewable. But I'm not sure. I think there is still an awful lot to do, isn't there? I mean, both because we'll need a lot more, we'll need a lot more electricity in the future because we're going to be charging our cars and, and using them for heat pumps and so on. partly because of what you say we're going to need the connectivity as well as building the windmills and, and, and solar and all those sorts of things. And partly, of course, because we need energy which is not intermittent. I mean, if the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing, we're going to need the backup for it. So perhaps we just spend a couple of minutes on just, what is the challenge in simply in the renewable electricity sector? And have we got the policies in place to achieve what we need to? So just as we talk today, this year,
1: let's say, probably around half of the electricity that we consume this year as a country will come from clean sources. Which is pretty amazing, isn't it, compared with where we were? It's amazing, yeah. So it's a mixture of renewables and and nuclear, so legacy nuclear that we've had in this country. And you know, we should pause on that and just remark on how how good that is. Um, Now, we, we in the CCC have long said we could have gone even faster on this, but you can look around the world and you won't find many other major economies that have pulled that off. So we're on the path to having clean electricity production. And that's such an important thing, because essentially, that's an offer to the country. You're saying, if you care about climate change, here is the you know the way forward. The, the electricity system will be cleaned up at some point over the next 10 to 15 years. And then every single electrical device that you have in your home or in your business that connects to the grid will be zero carbon. And that is a really clear statement of strategy. And actually, since we've had the Climate Change Act in this country since 2008, my institution, the CCC, has been advocating that strategy throughout. And that's it's it's great. So we're on the way to that. But we've achieved that largely by closing coal-fired power plants, um, the kind of dirtiest form of electricity generation. There was a point when the electricity sector was the dirtiest of the industrial sectors that we have in the UK. And it's now... Not the case, we've got other sectors. Transport is actually the biggest source of emissions, and then after that it's industry. So we've got, we're, we're on the way, but we've done that by closing coal. That's been the easy bit, and we've replaced that with a mixture of kind of using gas in the way that we used to use coal. And gas is a particularly useful thing because you can burn fossil gas uh, in a flexible way, we call it, so you can ramp it up and down, which is a nice complement to the other big part of the story, which is that we've been growing renewables over time um, uh, pretty consistently. Um, supported with initially some subsidy and now a different kind of support, which is largely about giving investors price certainty about the price they get for the electricity that they generate through something called a contract for difference. And all of that has been a huge policy adventure for the UK, which we've led the way on. Other countries in the world are you know, basically copying that that blueprint for how you decarbonize the, the power system. But that that where we are today isn't is is only half the job. So we've got broadly got we've got two things to do overall. We've got to grow the amount of clean electricity production that we have in the UK. And that's a mixture of nuclear and renewables, particularly offshore wind. There's also onshore wind and solar in there. But really, the bulk of it is offshore wind. Um, And we'll do that through something called the contract for difference thing I've talked about. We do that basically through an annual auction. And one of the first things to say on this is that the last time we held one of those annual auctions, it failed. When it comes to offshore wind, we didn't get any bids at all from offshore wind because the government had held the price at a level that basically the developers felt they couldn't develop at, and they did that in a, basically a game of brinkmanship to say how low the price could go with offshore wind. And the developers said, "It's actually we've seen huge increase in the costs of, of building these wind farms." And we can't live with a price at that level. So that when the next auction comes around next year, that's going to be one of the things to watch, is at what price does it clear if it clears at all for, for the next round of offshore wind. So that's the first thing, really, is to, to watch that very closely. But task one, grow the amount of clean electricity production that there is in the UK. Task two is the thing I don't think gets enough attention at all, which is that story of gas. So at the moment, we use gas very flexibly. Across the UK, there's about 30 places where we burn gas to generate electricity. And it's enormously helpful to have that because and the wind stops blowing and the sun stops shining, we can ramp up the gas production uh, and we have enough electricity to get by. We've got to decarbonise that too. So when you look at that challenge, that's not getting enough attention at all. Actually, that's the way to go quicker on this path to fully decarbonise power. We've got to look at those 30 places where we generate electricity. It's about 30. Probably what we need to do, and this is rule of thumb stuff, 10 of those places we need to close because they're older plants and we don't need them anymore. 10 we keep because it's really important to have sort of reserve capacity that's there when the wind really doesn't blow for long periods and it's still okay to burn fossil fuels for short periods to allow us to have that sort of energy security. But 10 of them we've got to decarbonize. And that's 10 places where we've got to generate electricity in a different way probably with hydrogen, uh, in the same way we burn hydrogen, in the same way we presently burn natural gas, or continuing to burn natural gas, but having carbon capture on the chimney somewhere. Now, that is 10 infrastructure projects, 10 places in the UK, we've got to think very carefully about how we decarbonize them. And you can't do that anywhere, because the infrastructure has got to be built for that. You've got to bring, you know, for example, CO2 storage doesn't happen you know, in random places around the UK. You've got to Think carefully about where those places are located. Probably most of them are on the East Coast. Um, and if we do this in combination, this, de- de- decarbonize those places, plus grow the renewables and the nuclear, then in our view in the CCC, we think we can decarbonize the power system um, by 2035 or thereabouts, middle of the 2030s. So that's the date by which we can say to the country, get your electric car, get your heat pump, get whatever el- electrical device you, you wish. It will be zero carbon at that point. So that's that's basically a 10-year project for the country. And last thing I'll say on this is that the Labour Party, if they come in, want to do it even earlier. So they want to achieve that by 2030, which is Herculean effort, uh, which might be possible if we think very carefully about that story of where the gas generation takes place, I think. But that, I think, is just such a huge project for the country, but it's such a good benefit at the end of it. And that basically, that's the journey done. Uh, I think that's the other story here. It's not some enduring project. After that, once you've decarbonized the power system, um, we're basically finished
0: on that. Uh, probably well ahead of other countries around the world. But as you say, it is a it is a huge task. You've, I mean, let, let's not get into a long discussion about nuclear here. But you have mentioned it a couple of times, and it's too late now to get any to start any new nuclear plants for 2030. Just about might get there for 2035. But the, these are decisions we need to make. Really, pretty sharpish.
1: Yeah, we should have um, the big new nuclear plant in Somerset, Hinckley Point C. So that's that, so Hinckley Point should should come on before twenty thirty five. I believe. At least I really hope it does, because we're relying on it. But all the new nuclear that has been announced in various shapes and forms by governments over the last five to ten years, that's after that date. I think. I won't dwell on this, but just to say that that new nuclear will be very helpful to the system, but we can do things without it. So you're by 2035, we reckon you can have a fully decarbonized power system without that new nuclear. And it's basically because of this interplay between renewables, which you can throw up more quickly as long as you have a successful auction, and this flexible generation that you get potentially from hydrogen or from, from gas with uh, with CCS and it's the interplay between those two things that allows you to have a decarbonized power system. What's interesting is probably it's a cheaper power system as well. So, you know, renewables are very cheap because the fuel for it is free essentially, wind or 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 the sun. And and, and although you are using this complement of a of quite an expensive flexible generation to go with it, you're not doing that all the time. So, you know, that you're only using that expensive uh that expensive stuff uh you know, fairly infrequently, because as we build out the renewable system, more and more of the time we can rely solely on
0: renewables. So that's quite exciting. But it's a lot of investment in the short run, I mean, it's largely private investment. But it is, you know, just ballpark how how many billions a year for the next decade to get there. I mean we we look at this it's a, it's it's a lot so
1: when, you know in the short term most of the investment for net zero is in the power system and it's a mixture of you know tens of billions in that renewable story plus tens of billions in the um uh in the in the infrastructure that takes the power around the country so that you know this is it's a, again you're doing that over the next 10 to 15 years particularly and then you've you've basically set up the country to
0: to rely on on those renewables and that infrastructure to get it around the country is also something I think people certainly, I know the CCC and so on have got their eye on it, but outside of in the specialist areas, people forget that it's not just about building the windmills, it is about building an awful lot of power lines to, to, to get the electricity from places like the North Sea uh, around the rest of the country. Yeah, it's the power
1: lines and the substations. It's actually the substations. I think often there are the bigger thing because they're actually you know buildings uh, that are sitting in often places on the coast where you've got highly litigious, yeah, yeah. highly litigious lawyers yeah. have gone to retire. <laughs> so so, so it's, uh,
0: it becomes extremely difficult for the planning regime. You, you make it sound relatively easy, but that's all challenging enough. But then the the hard bit, uh, the really hard bit, as you say, um, is. Uh, the getting households and businesses to change the way that they're in particular heating their um, properties, where if we're going to get to net zero, um, we really need to be getting people in the 2030s, not putting gas boilers in when they're replacing what they've got, but um, probably heat pumps. Where where are we um, on that journey? Yeah, we're not doing very well on that, really. I mean, I think that's the best way to put it. Um,
1: we are in the midst, I think, of a, a a moment where I hope we will pick up the pace on heat pumps. Certainly, so heat. Let's just talk about heat pumps. There, there are technology that's taken on slightly mythical status recently, as uh, on, and part and remarkably become part of the sort of culture wars around around a lot of this. But they're just a very sensible way of bringing heat into buildings. And basically, they, they they do so by taking a unit of electricity, and then using that unit of electricity in combination with the heat that's outside in the either in the air or in the ground, or sometimes in water, and using that electricity basically to kind of concentrate the heat and bring it into the home. Means you get fantastically efficient uh, source of heat within homes. And that's all a heat pump is. It's a bit like an air conditioning unit. Um, and you find them in other countries; they are the dominant source of heat. If you go to New Zealand, for example, ninety percent plus of homes are heated with heat pumps. They, they don't even talk about them as heat pumps because they're basically air conditioning systems. Um, we haven't made that journey, so we rely on gas mainly. Eighty plus, eighty percent plus of the of homes in the UK rely on gas boilers at the moment. And gas boilers are particularly useful in the UK because we've quite an old building stock, quite a kind of leaky building stock, not a very energy efficient building stock. And we also have weather that fluctuates quite a lot, so. Gas boiler is very helpful because you can heat up very quickly a, a property um, uh, with uh, with the radiators that almost everyone listening to this will have, um, and we've got to replace that with something new. So we're not very far down that journey at the moment, um, and heat pumps are only one of the technologies. I think it's important to say this that will deliver that outcome that we need. We think we think in the CCC that they are definitely the best technology for off gas grid properties. So those properties that probably have an oil boiler at the moment. We can relatively economically replace that oil boiler with a, with a heat pump now, and everyone has an electrical connection in their home already so that's quite a good uh, a, a good a good technology to, to to roll out and we don't need to bring out we don't need to pull out anyone's oil, oil boiler it's basically at the end of its useful life where you would replace it with a heat pump and if you're if you're not in a you know an urban conurbation that's a relatively simple thing to do so the government basically agrees with us on that the bigger question is what you do in towns and cities and Heat pumps definitely will play a role in that. So you, we may have seen that some of the big um, energy providers, uh, OVO and Octopus are the, the, the two principal ones that have been trying to develop a more of a consumer offer around heat pumps. What they're focusing on is a sort of two up, two down semi. So a classic uh, 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 house that you find right across the UK where you know a standard, standard air source heat pump uh, can be installed and they think they can do it pretty cheaply. So in fact, Octopus and Oval will both reckon with the government subsidy scheme that's in place, they can do it more cheaply than a gas boiler. So that's exciting. And we're only at the start of that. But that still leaves quite a significant proportion of the housing stock in cities, particularly. I live in a flat, I'm in a flat today. Um, at flats particularly, a bit of a challenge there because you've got, you've got something hanging out the back that looks like an air conditioning unit isn't going to be appropriate in many places. I think for those properties, we need more of a, more of a, a proper discussion of what we're going to do. And we probably need to move to something that looks a bit more like the things you find in in Scandinavian towns and cities, these um, district heating systems that basically pipe hot water around the city with a a central source of heat. And basically each property takes the heat out of that water, uh, sometimes with a heat pump. Um, But that is a very efficient way of, of heating those towns and cities without having to individually in every single property put a new heat pump in. So that requires planning and it requires, um, uh, you know, some measure of communal uh, uh,
0: investment. And uh, that's where at the moment we haven't got a, much of a strategy at all from the government. So what what should the government do next on all of this? I mean, the it just sounds incredibly tough. I mean, thir- whatever, there are 30 million households in the country. Very very few of them are heated by anything other than um, gas or oil uh, at the moment. I mean I live in a um, you know, a 1960s terrace, um, not terribly well insulated. frankly wouldn't have a clue what to do if I wanted <laughs> to move from my current combi gas boiler and I suspect'm you know, I suspect the same is true of ninety odd percent of of, of, of of others so I think the first thing I want to say in this is let's not
1: panic because we've got time. And, uh, and although, of course, I would like to see us move as quickly as possible away from fossil fuels in this country, we will. The, the worst possible way to do this is to do it in a disruptive uh, way that frightens people. So, you know, it's very important that we're warming our homes. So I think let's prioritise that. And if we do this well, and this is very much the way the CCC has looked at this, what we would ideally be doing is replacing fossil-fueled heating systems with decarbonised fossil- heating systems without fossil fuels, whatever that is, um, at the point when your boiler goes kaput. So we've got, lo- we've got time for this. And I'll just go back to what the Prime Minister said in Downing Street. He basically moved a set of dates, um, which are important in the analysis that we've done in the CCC, but they come from us. And the government basically has taken the same view. And in a sense, that's... There's an ideology behind that, which is worth just briefly exploring because what what those dates do is no more than simply say, look, if you put a gas boiler in today or an oil boiler in today, it will probably last on average 15 years. So if you want to get to 2050, by 2050 have zero carbon, then you've got to take that 15 years off that. And basically by 2035 or thereabouts, you've got to stop installing those things. And that is a, that's the a sort of, an ideology in the sense that basically it, it, you're, the one way in which to do that is to stop the sale of things by a certain date. But there are other ways to skin a cat. And I think in the end, we've got to recognise that, that that ideology isn't it doesn't suit the Prime Minister. And I'm fine with that, as long as there's an alternative way of doing it. So one other way of doing it, which seems to me is more in the spirit of how he thinks about things, is to give a sharper incentive for the cleaner stuff than the, than the dirtier stuff. And that's broadly what he's doing. He's basically pumping in subsidy into that heat pump market. He's also giving a signal to the manufacturers of boilers that they should produce more and more heat pumps as a proportion of the heating systems that they produce. And, and, um, and I think that could work too. And I think the other thing I'll chuck into the mix here is there is a point, when certainly for the gas grid, where you can't have a gas grid if you haven't got enough gas boilers on it. So you know you have to kind of plan that, and there is a point when you shut that grid down and replace it with something else. It might just be an electrical grid, or maybe it's those heat, those district heating systems that I talked about. That takes planning too, and it probably means that we need to bring into the discussion this thing that we we haven't talked about so much so far, which is scrappage. You know, what do you do to actually proactively and in a very planned way uh, scrap some of those capital assets when most people have already made the move to something cleaner? And in, in reality, we were always going to have to do that. So I suppose I don't worry too much about the, the, you know, the, the scale of it because we're, we've got time over the next two decades to plan this well. And interestingly, in terms of energy, we've done this before. So we didn't used to have a gas grid. Um, now we do. And I think you know if we take the outlook that you know the Victorians might have taken to all of this, which is that this is an infrastructure thing worth pursuing and that we've got time to do it, then we shouldn't worry too much about it. I think the, the one thing we the one thing we have to bring in here is cost. Who's paying for it? How are we going to keep the costs low? How do we keep the certainty in place over a long period so that private investors are, are willing to invest in some of these assets? That's broadly what we've done in the UK so far. That is where I worry about some of this flip-flopping because you're just creating an extra, uh, you know, premium
0: on the cost of raising finance for all of this, which we could do without. Well that's quite um quite positive and I think it is worth reminding ourselves of the huge um, transformations that we have achieved in the past it, it sometimes feels that the last um recent decades we've got worse and worse <laughs> at doing this kind of thing but uh, but it is within our capability the the other um the other announcement we've had recently is that the government is um, uh, providing licenses to open a new oil field off the um, off off the north coast of um Scotland. I um, mean how, how how does that sit with you? Well, it so it doesn't sit well. I'm quite happy to
1: say that, but it also doesn't it doesn't immediately uh it doesn't jump out immediately as something you can't do under the way that the climate change act works. And I, let me just briefly explain that. You wanted bre- you wanted brevity so I'll give it. The climate change act is about emissions that we produce here in the UK. So it's about it's a sort of it's a burn it question. So where are you burning those fossil fuels? Is what the climate change act's looking at, and we call that production emissions. Uh, what's the discussion of, of Rosebank, which is this brand new oil field to the to the west of Shetland, is 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 a is a produce it question rather than a burn it question. So there is room in the carbon budgets, as they're called, these legal targets, for new oil fields. Because the bit that the carbon budgets measure is the emissions that come with the production of the oil in the first place. There are emissions that come with that, notably from things like venting and, and flaring. Uh, we can accommodate that in those carbon budgets. So there is a world where we meet our targets and we have new oil fields. And that's the world that the prime minister seems to be pushing us toward. My concern, the bigger concern, is that is not so much the, the carbon budgets Basically, if you have more emissions from oil production in Shetland, then you just got to work harder in another sector of the economy to accommodate those emissions. The bigger question is: what's the world doing with all this? Because we know that the, the world's temperature is being impacted by the fossil fuels that we bring out the ground and burn. And what we know of global oil and gas reserves is that there's too much too much. It's too much for the carbon, for the for the temperature targets that were set in Paris. And basically we're not helping on that front. Um, but I have to acknowledge that there's a legitimate energy security concern here in a world where you've got what, fossil fuels being weaponized by, uh, by Putin, um, there is a legitimate concern about that. These you know, geopolitical concerns should be a factor. I think when you think in those terms, the second question you might ask is not so much about the emissions, but how do U.K. consumers benefit from that new oil and gas that's being exploited? And here it's less clear that they do so there's a tax return there's clearly tax benefits to bringing the stuff out of the ground but it will be sold in a global market only a fraction of that oil that's produced will actually come to the uk and i think the government needs to do more to explain that to people that you know they're doing this they're not doing this for climate reasons or for energy security reasons they're probably doing it because they want the tax revenues and the jobs that go with that um but it's it's not so obviously true to me at least that what we're doing is guaranteeing a future supply of oil for people in the uk that need it because it's a, it's a Norwegian, it's Equinor, it's a Norwegian state-owned uh, oil company that's going to be uh, developing that oil and selling it. So none of that came out when the uh, announcement at Rosebank came out. And we've still got 100 more of these licenses to go.
0: So I'd like to see the government present this stuff in a more straightforward way. And I suppose that's one example of the sort of bigger, very final question I wanted to ask, which is about how things are going internationally. Um, as you say, you know, we can um, we can produce all this oil, and if someone else burns it, that's not affecting our targets. But obviously, it's affecting the world. Uh, uh, and equally, um, one of the things that we're doing, of course, is importing stuff that has uh, you know, involved quite a lot of greenhouse gas um, emissions. And one of the you know, one of the intelligent criticisms I think of our net zero target is that it's based on emissions we produce rather than ones that we consume. And we could hit net zero while still having a really big negative effect on the planet because we're importing uh, lots of stuff that has uh, created uh, large amounts of greenhouse gases. Um, so, you know, we've, we've had a long conversation about where we are in the UK and some of the challenges facing us. Um, in the last five minutes, um, uh, where, where, where's where, where's the rest of the world? Are you, uh, are you reasonably confident that the rest of the world is doing what it needs to do? Are we uh, are we still leading the pack and going to be sort of stranded as it were with net zero whilst everyone else is still destroying the planet?
1: No, I think there's a momentum now globally that that you can't really avoid. I mean, the, the, the reason I'm optimistic globally is about the energy transition. I'll say now, I'm less optimistic about the other big transition that we need to make, which is how we use land globally. That's not happening. So a really, really worrying thing is that actually. But um, you know, we're not seeing, for example, rainforests uh, destruction ending in the in the in the pace that we need it to, and we're definitely not seeing regrowth of what's presently agricultural land to store lots of carbon. But set that aside, the energy question looks it does look better and better each year. Um, now, the UK is still amongst the leading pack because we're doing a lot on the energy transition. But again, one of the things Prime Minister said is that we are, you know we're the, we the head of the pack. Well, we're not actually when you look recently. In fact, Germany's well ahead of us. The pace in which they are decarbonizing their energy system is faster than us. Um, other countries similarly. Globally, it's happening. And the reason it's happening is just be- is mainly because solar and wind is getting so cheap, particularly solar, and it's destroying the economics of fossil fuels. So if you can use solar, you probably should now, wherever you are in the world, even the UK, we have wind as our, our dominant alternative uh, with a bit of nuclear in there too. The economics of renewables just gets better and better every year because you can produce these solar panels in China at fantastically lower costs than they were even sort of five, 10 years ago. And I think that's inexorable now. And you can, you're can you going to see that playing out. I think the, the bigger question is how you plan an energy system to use those uh, those sources. And that's where the action is. But we've still got a long way to go. I mean, as we talk today, we're in definitely a sort of plateau period for global emissions Uh, in terms of emissions from the power sector, which has been the focus for so long, it might be this year that we see this is the peak year um, and uh, it will begin. And once the decline starts, it'll pick up pace basically because the reason it's happening is because the fundamental economics of the alternative energy sources are so good. And the UK is seeing that um, countries in Europe are seeing that, but crucially so are other parts of the world, India, Africa, North America, wherever you go, you're seeing that economics now, you know, trump fossil fuels, particularly in the power sector. The next thing is the transport sector. Again, the economics of electric cars look so much better uh, than petrol and diesel cars. There's a reason why the Chinese, you know, 10, 15 years ago made a strategic conscious decision not to build supply chains of petrol and diesel cars and move immediately to electric cars. And it's basically because they're cheaper. The electric the production lines themselves are cheaper uh, and the cars that they produce are cheaper to run. And they spotted that. Where, you know, we are basically now in other parts of the world um, trying, to, trying to pick up the pace to, to, to compete. So transport and power look good. Industry is the other one. Um, and in industry, we've got bigger questions because we use fossil fuels extensively for things like steel production. Uh, the chemicals industry uses a lot of fossil fuels. There's still a lot more to do there. I'm less optimistic about that because the alternatives don't look so cheap. Um, and although you can do it with hydrogen, hydrogen is a, an alternative that looks very appealing for some of those processes. It's an expensive energy source. Carbon capture is not cheaper than not carbon capture. So some of that stuff is still to come, I think. But it feels to me like things are moving in the right direction. The, the, the problem with climate change is you're against the clock. And it's this cumulative problem. That Every year we keep pumping the stuff into the atmosphere, the, the problem gets worse. And that doesn't stop until globally we get to net zero CO2 and we're we're still miles off that. So uh, you know, I think that, that what we're going to see, sadly, I don't want to end on a negative point, but we're in a, a pretty amazing period now. The September we've just had is the warmest September that we've ever recorded. It's off the scale when you look at the temperatures way beyond anything that uh, some of the scientists who look in this look at this were expecting. And um, I'm afraid it's just another example of climate change now properly taking hold. And what comes with those hot temperatures, these very destructive events, flooding, bigger storms, droughts, that stuff is, I'm afraid, it's not going away. And most of us, we went on holiday this year, probably had some sort of experience that we wouldn't have had, say, 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, if you'd gone on holiday. So that's, that's those two stories and narratives are competing now. You know, How quickly can we go in the energy transition? Uh, and how, how quickly will climate change itself take hold? and uh, i don't know where that ends actually it's um it's 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 pretty worrying i think but the energy transition let's end in the positive
0: it looks good it was so positive until that last uh, that, that last uh, <laughs> bring us down to earth with a bump as you say the, the the hottest september on record by a mile i mean it was extraordinary wasn't it it was just way outside of anything experienced um, before which is, is potentially a really worrying sign for the future and uh, you know, and, and but but also you know extraordinary reminder of why you know, everything that you're you at the CCC are doing is so important and why um, you know having that organization to hold the government's um, feet to the fire on this is is so incredibly uh, incredibly important I think anyone who's listened to this will know that in Eucharist in they're in they're in good hands um, so thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, everyone, for listening um, to this episode of the IFS Zooms In. To see more of our work, do visit www.ifs.org.uk. And if you want to, to further support us, do consider becoming a member for as little as £10 a month. You can find out more in the episode description. We'll see you next time.